This is Africa Emerging Podcast with your host, Tutu Adamola. We're set to showcase the unique contributions of influential Africans living in the developed economies who, against all odds, have made indelible marks in their respective professions around the world. Join me as we shape this new narrative. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Africa Emerging Podcast. This is the part two and the concluding conversation I had with Tunji Akintokun. If you haven't listened to episode one of the show, I will strongly recommend you listen to that part of the show. In episode one, we talked about his education background, growing up in London, the heart moment when he decided to study a STEM subject, the different charity work he's involved in, and his passion for inclusion and diversity. In part two of the show, we deep dive into making career choices, leadership skills, opportunity he had to become the torchbearer for Cisco at the 2016 Olympics. We also talked about when he received his nomination and was honored by Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II for his contribution to the community. He gave his in-depth insight about the African tech ecosystem and how he sees that space in the next five to 10 years. Also, we talked about the African continent potentially being the next economic boom. The conversation inspired me a lot gave me more in-depth knowledge about opportunities available on the African continent. I hope you enjoyed like I did. Also, um, while looking through your, your profile, I did realize that in 2016 Olympics, you were actually the torchbearer for Cisco. How did you feel getting involved in um, um, such a renowned event known worldwide? Yeah, it was. Uh, I guess it's one of those amazing things you do in life that um, you know you you wonder probably how people end up doing that, and um, you know it, it it was something that I probably not in a million years would have ever thought I would do. You know, I've watched. I'm a very big um, fan of the Olympics. I you know I was a, pr- a former athlete, so for me, watching track and field is my kind of thing, and. Uh, you know, I've been to many Olympics, you know, going back to 84 in Los Angeles. Uh, I haven't missed many of them. You know, my wife and I have been to Barcelona. We did obviously London. You know, um, we missed Beijing because um, our son was born um, the year before. So he was too young to really travel. Oh. But obviously London and Rio. And um, the way I got involved with, uh, we've been a torchbearer at the, um, the Rio Olympics was that, Cisco itself is an Olympic sponsor, as, as we were in 2012 when I worked there. So they get the opportunity, which is quite intriguing, in that as a, an Olympic sponsor, they get uh, the opportunity to have seven people within their organization um, to be able to run with the torch on one of the legs uh, in Brazil. And uh, what Cisco did, I mean, it has 77,000 employees. They, um, they, they, we ran an internal competition at the time. And you had to write about a thousand words as to why you should be considered um, uh, as a person to represent the company. And then they had a bunch of judges that would um, would do this. And the funny thing about it was when the when the competition came out, I didn't really see it. it was my PA that actually said to me, Tunji, you should apply for this because, you know, you do so much around this. And I think that, you know, you'll be somebody that should. And I kind of said to her, yeah, 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 I'll get round to it. 
and then you know the deadline was coming up and um she said to me have you done it and i hadn't and i said i'll, I'll do it over the weekend and i made a note in my diary and then over the weekend i gave it some thought and when i looked at the principles of the olympics and what it stands for and i looked at my own values and then the things i'd done around my social enterprises i realized there was a lot of alignment and then with the extra part in that i was a um, a track and field athlete um, you know and had a real passion around the olympics i just guess i wrote a very impassioned piece of words um, around why I thought that I, I should represent the company and how it aligned with my own values. And um, I did this piece of work. I submitted it on, online, as you do within Cisco. And, um, you know, I didn't hear anything more. And then probably about six months later, um, I was very, very surprised. And you know, I was put onto a call um, that I was asked to attend with my boss yeah. um, to speak. And they said it was with corporate and and I thought maybe I'd done something wrong. I was a bit nervous. I didn't know who I was going on the call with. Uh, my boss already knew, but she'd had to keep it a secret. And then they got me on the call and then said, you know, we've read through your submission. And um, they said to me, you know, congratulations. You know, it was amazing, inspiring what you wrote. We would love to have you, you know, be one of our torchbearers. And I was speechless. Oh, absolutely God. speechless. It was such an honor. And I mean, if any of you... Google, you'll see, I, you know, I wrote, you know, I, I did a small video about the fact that, you know, what was it like to be chosen? And um, the experience was amazing. You know, yeah. you know, we, my wife and I were flown out to, uh, to Brazil um, and then I got to run with the torch uh, in wow. Sao Paulo. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's one of those things that you will carry with you for the rest of your life. You know, mm -hmm. it was an amazing uh, weekend uh, going seeing Brazil for the first time but then getting the opportunity to to run probably around 250 300 meters um, of the the streets of Sao Paulo with the torch you know and a global event that's been televised um, and then you know yeah. to you know to, to pass that flame on and be a part of those Olympics and mm -hmm. uh, now it's been great you know I've uh, made some good friends that that the, the, the lady that um, actually passed the flame to me, that we yeah. touched our flames through the flame on, has become a really good friend. Wow. And, um, amazing part of technology is that um, Rusia doesn't speak any English and I don't speak any Portuguese, but, yeah. you know, through translation uh, and the translation in Facebook, um, yeah. you know, we keep in regular touch now. Wow, that's um, We cool. have for half years, so it's been brilliant. And... Um, Ironically, she does something similar to what I do in Brazil for young women. Oh. So we've this kind of passion mm. for the same thing. And the dream is one day is to um, be able to do a joint event uh, between London and uh, or the UK and Brazil. And I think we're certainly working towards that over the next few years. That's that's so um, quite impressive. But an amazing opportunity to get, you know, you know, purely for doing what is a passionate thing outside of work and um, you know I'll always be thankful uh, for Cisco for giving me that opportunity because it was life-changing. Yeah 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 I can say. So uh, apart from that I've also um, I also realised that um, recently you also got, received an MBE from um, Her Majesty uh, Queen Elizabeth. Can you talk us through um, what you were honoured by the Queen? Yes and, and, and a deep honour and a very humbling honour which um, you know, I think it's one of those things that's quite amazing because I think with most awards and recognition, at some point you know that you've been nominated and you know your um, 
you know, you have an opportunity to be recognized. And I think the one thing I like in some respects about the the MBE and the whole honors process um, for, you know, royal, um, uh, I, I guess, uh, awards is that you have no part to play and have no idea because somebody else has to do the background work and the submission on your behalf. So um, it's a process that's quite lengthy um, and can be, but also one that you have no involvement or any idea about because you're not supposed to know because, you know, it's supposed to be a surprise. But more importantly, uh, there are probably many submissions that go in that are not successful. So I think the whole idea of not raising people's expectation Mm -hmm. um, is also important. So for me, I mean, I was deeply honoured when I received it. I remember the day that the letter came through. I had no idea. Um, I came home. Was, was it through um, the post? It comes through the post, and the uh, the and it, it and it tells you how long the process can take because um, when the submission was put in by whoever put the submission in, I have found out more recently who did the submission. Yeah. Um, they had used my old address, and wow. we had moved home. Okay. So the letter actually went to my old address, but luckily because that particular property we still own, although we rent it, mm-hmm. the post is redirected so when it came to my new house or our new house um you know the letter came through the post box i had no idea what it was for it was addressed from the cabinet office wow. i just thought it was something special to do with tax or something so i kind <laughs> of put it, oh my God. Uh, it was going carried on with my day job <laughs> and then later when i came home i opened up the envelope um, a little bit nervously because i was thinking it looks official maybe i've done something wrong i'm thinking <laughs> did i put my taxes did i do this is the speeding fine and then, you know, you open up this letter and then you're, you know, you're, you're, you're being informed that you've been put forward, you know, by the Prime Minister to the Queen to be receiving wow. this honour. So wow. um, I think the hardest part of it um, was actually you then had to keep it a secret for an, over a month. Wow. You can't tell anybody. You can't tell anyone. Um, <laughs> no, the, the only person I knew was my wife. That was wow. it. Um, so then you're, you're, you know, you have to wait for the official announcements to come out at the end of the year. Um, And I think for me personally, I I was humbled and honoured and proud that it was, um, you know, it was given in recognition for something I would do and I'm passionate about anyway, which was, you know, you know, for services to young people in um, from ethnic minorities and backgrounds in science and technology. And if anybody said to me, what would you like to be known or recognised for? Or what your legacy would be, it would certainly be one of those things. And um, to be recognised for that um, was a real deep honour. It was a, a very nice day uh, for my children as well. And we talk about role models and things like that. You know, my, 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 my children are, you know, are 13 and 11. So for them to have the opportunity to, to share in a, a special day going to Buckingham Palace was, um, was quite was quite uh, amazing, and um, you know I was very very deeply humbled and um, appreciative that you know the, the you know the work that I've done in this area um, was recognised in yeah. this way. I mean, you you don't do it for that; you do it because it's the right thing to do. And you know, for me, the pleasure is just seeing you know a young person that we provided a bursary fulfilling their potential and going on to do great things. That's where my pleasure comes from. Exactly. And, you know. Every now and then when you get, get a, a little tap on the back yourself for what you're doing, you know, it, it's nice as well. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's always good to celebrate the wins as well. Indeed. It is indeed. And uh, as a, a, a good friend of mine, Michelle Moore, said last night at the Precious Awards is that when you win these awards, you need to embrace it and own it. You shouldn't feel 
embarrassed or feel that you shouldn't talk about it, you know, you need to ensure that you own it and embrace the fact that you'll be recognized for something good. Absolutely, absolutely. So I do reckon that you've got like a very busy schedule, you know, with your work, with um, what your passion, what you do with your charities and all that. So how do you manage all this busy schedule with family time? How do you get to strike a, <laughs> strike a balance between everything? It's um, it's a very good question. And uh, first and foremost, I have to say I have an extremely supportive and understanding wife. Um, and I think, you know, I certainly wouldn't be able to do a lot of the things I do unless I had that. I would say she's very supportive. She'd probably say that she's probably long suffering. Um, <laughs> however, you know, uh, she she recognizes that she has a very busy uh, career in her own self. She's a barrister. Um, so she's, you know, it's not like she's, uh, you know, somebody that just, you know, stays at home um, either. So we're both career people. We have careers and we have to balance it. Um, and I think that's something that um, has been important, um, being able to do that. But, you know, there's a, a very overused saying, but one that I've learned in all my years at leadership, there's, you know, they say there's no I in team. And I've built, I would say, a very, very good team of people around me. And I believe that if you do good for others, others will do good for you and it gets reciprocated. And what I've found and everything from, you know, if I look at the trustees of my, um, of my trust, they are former or existing recipients of bursaries who want to give back to say, I've helped, you've helped me to help me with my studies. I want to give back and help by supporting you. So it means I'm, I'm quite good. And I've learned over the years through coaching of how to delegate, to build teams, and not to get too precious around that you could be the founder of anything, but you don't necessarily have to be the person that does all the work. You know, exactly. you can share that out, share the success, the plan, others to, to, to also build their brand and their success as well and be part of that. And I think that's the one thing I've learned well in that anything I've done, I've built that. And um, with my family, my work-life balance, um, you know, my wife, um, you know, she's very, very understanding and supportive. But, you know, she also holds me to account. And I don't get off, you know, I don't get away with it. I still have to do my share. I still have to do at least one of the school runs when we had our children, um, you know, in uh, primary school. And, um, you know, I make sure that my schedule works around the important things um, with my children and with my family. So I, I, you know, try to keep my weekends as clear as possible to ensure that I spend that time, you know, my, my daughter's a very promising young athlete, which requires a lot of time. And my son's, um, you know, doing very well as well. So you don't do that by not being present. Exactly. So I do, I mean, to, in these formative years to ensure that we do that. And as a family, I think, you know, my wife's very good at gluing us together. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, as they say, you have to learn to say no. There's lots of things I'd love to do that I have to say, you know what, family first, I can't do that. Exactly. Um, but, you know, I've learned how to delegate and say, I can't do that speaking engagement or I can't do that for you. But have you tried this person within my network or somebody I mentor who's really good that can do this? Yeah. And I think that's um, how I'm able to, in some respects, appear very present, but also I delegate a lot. And that includes some very practical things. If you go on social media, if you were very astute, you would think that I probably spent my whole day on social media, but I don't. I actually have, you know, young people that have helped, I have helped who helped me that run my social media platforms. And all I do is I verify the content of what I'd like to go out on my behalf and they help. Exactly. Um, yeah. I post 
um, and do those things for me or, or gather the content for me to review. So they, everybody contributes and that team through family, through the social enterprise teams, et cetera, allows me to be able to then scale uh, and touch and impact as many people positively in a, in a, in a, in a very balanced way. That's that's a good a good tip. I think um, I've taken a lot from that as well because um, sometimes as as a career person as and someone who you've also got passion to do other stuff and you've also got a family, it could be quite challenging, you know, to try and it try to be. balance. Yeah, I think it will be, and I and I, I mentor a lot of um, young people um, who have that challenge at present where they've started social enterprises or really, really cool, you know, things outside of work or side hustles where they're struggling. And a lot of them are purpose driven mm. um, and they're, they're the right things to do, but then they struggle with that balance. And, yeah. uh, you know, there's that part that says, yes, you want to be the driving force, but, you know, you have to share that journey with others and also be willing to let go sometimes and say, well, okay, I'm going to have to let that go. And I think that, um, you know, a bit of career advice I give to many people. And um, I always say that in any role or what you do, there's a period of um, of storming. Then there's a period of norming. Yeah. And then there's a period of mastery. Wow. And you should always look to move to your next position when you've mastered something. Because if you stay mastering something too long, then complacency um, and fatigue can often creep in. Um, and I've always tried to move uh, or change things when I've mastered something rather than just kind of keep riding that mastery um, uh, journey. And I then look for something that's going to challenge me again. And it doesn't mean I get bored. It's not. It's just a case of recognizing this is mastered. We've got teams that are able to run this. I'm effectively becoming more redundant and more of a figurehead and just a talking head for what it is because I've got people that are able to do this. It's yeah. now time for me to leave that with them as the legacy for them to continue with and move on to something else. And I think that's an important you know, aspect of my approach to, to things I do. Yeah, wow. You know what, from what you've just said, I'll say I would summarize it as you've just said, there's a period of storming, norming, and there's a period of mastery. And when you get to that period of mastery, you need to then go to the next challenge rather than just staying there. So I think that's, that's um, a takeaway for me as well from um, the conversation. Good. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. So um, what would you advise someone like a young person or not even young person, maybe it might be someone in their te- 30s who want to go into STEM, you know, take up a STEM subject. What would you advise them? Um, I would certainly advise them to do their research and to, if possible, um, meet as many people in the different areas that they may be interested in to get an idea of what sorts of roles are available um, in science and technology and what they would like to do. Now, and the reason I say that is because if I turn around and someone said to me, I'm interested in STEM, and I said, well, go and talk to somebody at John Lewis, they would probably think instinctively, well, John Lewis is a retail organization (laughs) um, that sells stuff. And you're absolutely right. They are. They've got Waitrose and Bits and Bobs with Ocado, et cetera. However, what you will find out is that there's a hell of a lot of technology behind the logistics, the supply chains, um, the stock management and things that are technology driven and that John Lewis does. And there are lots of jobs in STEM behind them. And this is where I try and get people to not just think about technology and STEM as being engineering or this company. Every company has an aspect of technology or STEM 
related roles or skills that they need. So for me, it's about looking at what's available. What do they do? You can go to, you know, I, my office is here. Um, I work at London Bridge um, uh, and I have a very nice view of the River Thames every day. And there's a very impressive office blocks opposite me. And they are law firms. They are um, financial institutions. But if you look at the amount of jobs that are technology or STEM related there, they're high mm-hmm. because a lot of those companies rely on technology. And no. my challenge to people is to say, well, why don't you look at these companies and see what different jobs they have and don't just look at what their end product is behind them. And then probably more importantly for people that are probably a little bit older, then it becomes more of a different kind of question around, well, what sort of culture um, and what sort of organization are they? You know, do they embrace flexible working? Does the environment look quite diverse? Do they embrace diversity and inclusion? They become more different things they're looking for because it needs to be more fulfilling. You're going to spend, as I say to many people, you spend a third of your life, if not more of it, in work. It better be something that you enjoy and you're passionate about, or at least you love the company you work for, um, because otherwise it's, you know, for me, it's a third of your life you're wasting um, mm-hmm. because you're just stressed over it and not happy and you're not fulfilled. And I know that for many people that is the case. So I think it's important to do your homework, go around and see these companies, ask them what they're doing, but probably more importantly, speak to lots of people that are doing different types of roles. And then, you know, things like Your Future Ambition is a great way to do that. But there are many other, you know, career fairs out there that let let people then see what types of technology jobs they're looking for, these companies are looking for, but more importantly, what's available. Because interestingly, as I said, with John Lewis as an example, you know, there are many other organizations that have technology or STEM-related roles that people just don't know exist. I mean... um, You know, it could be working for British Telecom um, in their fiber optics department that looks to lay fiber optic cable under the sea between, you know, the West Coast uh, of uh, America and uh, Hawaii or something like that, Mm. where, you know, there are some really interesting jobs around that that people would never know that exist. You know, I met somebody here at NSC Global. That's what he did. He used to work on a ship laying underground fiber optic cables mm-hmm. connecting and building the internet and we talk about africa as an example i'm sure if you ask many of your people listening to this you know how many people know that there are about three or four complete fiber optic rings that circumvent um africa from the Suez canal all the way down to the cape right the way around the west coast and back up uh, through the um the mediterranean people don't know that don't but there know. are many links there with points of presence going in along the coast to provide super fast um, internet access um, to Africans um, in our in our continent. But there's jobs behind that that need to be done because the people laying those cables often are not necessarily indigenous African country, uh, companies, but they need people that can support them once they've done that work. And I think that's where, for me, the opportunity lies, especially within Africa, where we've got a population of what, near 1.1, 1.2 billion, yeah. mm-hmm. five, five to 600 million of those uh, people are very young. Yeah. So, you know, opportunity to get them steered towards technology. And that's not just in technology, but it's what, what can technology you do for other industries, whether it's agriculture, you know, people talk about the internet of things, how you can have farmers be able to manage their, their crop better mm-hmm. because they've got 
sectors that are connected to the soil and to their cattle, yeah. that they are connected um, into applications that tell them where the best um, you know, where the best weather is to plant seeds so that they get a better yield from their crop, but also to ensure that they can guide their cattle to the right areas of land where there's going to be uh, opportunity for that cattle to graze. So there's lots of different things. But behind all of that cool stuff you see at the front, yeah. there are technology jobs and coding and application development and that needs to be done by people. That These are jobs that are desperately underserved at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what, when you mentioned about um, internet, <clears throat> back back in Africa now, I think internet is a big thing because everyone mm. now uses smartphone. But the internet connection yes. sometimes, when I, I've got families back who, who live back um, in Nigeria, mm-hmm. back in Africa, sometimes you want to have a video call with them and, you know, the yes. connection is not great which tells me there's an opportunity for people to do stuff there to make it better. Look, there's a, there's a fantastic uh, opportunity. And it's a great point too, too. I mean, the one benefit I always say about um, Africa is that we have leapfrogged uh, an infrastructure with the internet and telecoms that many of the Western com- countries still have to grapple with in that we don't have necessarily the super highways. And I mean that in terms of literal roads, and rail links that have long lines of fiber optic and copper cables. Um, the technology has moved on now. Mobile broadband, you know, four and five G networks provide suitable um, and adequate bandwidth for video calls. And it's about the companies in Africa, the indigenous, um, and also the state-owned and the private um, uh, service providers or the, you know, the, the MTNs of the world or the Etisalat, et cetera. It's about them building their networks out with that mobile broadband capability so that we can leapfrog and not have to think, well, we need to lay cables in the road to get access. We don't. We can just go to mobile broadband together with, you know, um, you know, satellite technology that's been, that's improving where we can then just take advantage of the latest technologies without the legacy. And I think that sooner, um, you know, the organizations um, that drive these can take advantage of that, then Africa will be even more well-connected. And as you know, you know, the, in, if we take our population, the average African owns something like, I think it's 1.8, if not 2 smartphones, which means that most young people have more than one phone or one device. It means that, you know, the appetite Mm. and the opportunity for the providers based on the consumption is high because you've got a young generation in the continent who are using this technology now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's an opportunity or business opportunity for the carriers to be able to build their networks, to take advantage of that capacity and and be able to charge for it. So I think it's just a time thing. And I think with mobile broadband coming through now, it does provide um, these companies with the opportunity to deploy fast broadband technology quickly and efficiently. Yeah, yeah, I remember. I think, uh, like, like you said, I remember back then when I lived in in Nigeria, I had two mobile phones. I had like Econet, and I also had like um, yeah. Econet of those days, and I had MTN. Yeah. So, but when I relocated to the UK, it, it felt a bit strange carrying two mobile phones about. But Indeed. it was it was it was standard back then, you know. It was two yeah, mobile it's, phones. It's, it's, so yeah, I'm excited. I mean, personally, I'm I'm excited about the opportunities for Africa for technology. Uh, I think you know one of the biggest struggles as even within the West is about talent yeah. and having enough 
talent there to be able to take advantage of the fact that we need people on the ground. I think mm. there's a lot of interesting projects at the moment and programs around tapping into the diaspora here yeah. in, the, in the UK to try and encourage um, many Africans from the diaspora to at least go back to their countries of origin for a while to do a knowledge and skills transfer or to work there for a while so that you know we can take a lot of the, the Western learning that we've got from working for global companies and deploy it on the ground to ensure that you know our countries of origin or our parents come uh, you know where our parents have uh, are either gone back to or, or have come from are able to also take advantage for the next generation to yeah. to have those skills and I think that's really important absolutely which is one of one of the visions behind um africa emerging that most uh, most of us will come from africa we all here now we've got the talent we've got opportunities to work for these global organizations we need to start giving back to the continent we need to start helping mm. to build the continent i think we do and I, and i think the sooner that happens i'm seeing it in pockets mm. but probably not enough of it and um i think the more we can do that in an effective way then you know the knowledge transfer the skills transfer and going back to when we started this um podcast you know it then becomes around role modeling and then when we see more people who are back there that are doing these roles in these companies then people then see this as an opportunity mm-hmm, absolutely so wh- where do you see in the next five to ten years where do you see the tech ecosystem um the african tech ecosystem Do you know what? I think it's the biggest opportunity on the globe at the moment in terms of digitizing Africa, you know, and I I see that the biggest challenge to that is companies feeling comfortable investing in Africa. Um, Because as you say, you're looking for a lot of foreign direct investment um, and probably also investment um, from indigenous African uh, uh, companies um, into the infrastructure. So I see there's a huge opportunity to do what I would say is a, a very good blueprint example. And I always use um, often Botswana as being an example of an African country that has decided to look at the natural minerals that it has and the generation, in, i.e. in Botswana, is predominantly diamonds, um, etc., amongst other precious um, stones and metals. And they've decided to use the income from that to build out an infrastructure uh, like a digital superhighway that will connect every school, university, hospital, library, doctor together. So they start to become much more um, efficient in terms of the infrastructure to serve their people. But probably more importantly, it then creates a lot of jobs in the digital space because the Botswana government has seen clearly, look, you know, we need to have a generation growing up that are tech savvy and digital ready to be able to compete on the world stage. And I think that other African countries, the other 50 plus of them out there, need to replicate that model to some extent because pretty much most African countries have natural resources which are drawing income, whether it's oil or natural you know, um, minerals or metals, et cetera, yeah. or, or commodities yeah. like cocoa or whatever, where they can start to divert a small amount of that income into digital technology and infrastructure. And it is the infrastructure that's important, you know, to be able to build out, to allow, you know, us to be able to compete more on the global economy. Um, and, you know, topical as it is at the moment, if you think about Brexit, Brexit in a way should, in theory, provide more opportunity for Africa 
than it's ever had. Yeah. Um, and it has to be ready to be able to take that opportunity with, um, with the UK leaving. But, you know, I doubt right now we would be able to do that. But in the future, if Africa gets its digitization plan sorted out, then we should be able to compete more effectively amongst ourselves within the African Union, but also then on the global scale uh, stage as well in respect to commerce or, or other things, because we'll be digitally ready and enabled to do that. Every single industry, no matter whether you're cement, whether you're cocoa, whether you're you know, legal firms, you will be touched by technology in one way or the other. Yeah, and I think sure. that if you've got a population that is tech savvy, digitally ready, um, and able to use and take advantage of that, then it, it, it contributes to communities because they're more connected and have more accessibility to information and services. But more importantly, then it contributes to the economy because the GDP will rise because you've got a more skilled workforce, which means that you'll attract more foreign direct investment from companies, which then in turn means that the standard of living uh, gets raised over time. So I do see an exciting opportunity for Africa um, in the future. Um, It will always be played and have to be balanced with political and, you know, macroeconomic challenges and geopolitical challenges that each country has. But what I do take confidence in is that a lot of African countries are starting to look at each other and say, we should be working and collaborating better together rather than having always rely on other foreign organizations outside of Africa. Um, and I think, um, you know, it's a, it's a it, it possibly is a bit of an urban myth, but I do believe when you look at the facts, there's probably some truth in it. They often say that if every continent had to lock off its border and live off its own means, only Africa has all of the natural resources, um, both food, minerals, etc., to be able to sustain itself. Yes, you can't say any better. Every every other continent, even if you look at China, it has to rely on lots of natural resources outside of its own um, country uh, to be to be able to survive. But I think Africa is one of only a few continents that probably could. It has its own minerals, it has its own oil, it has its own food, you know, uh, its agriculture and everything. It, It has enough to be able to sustain itself. But, you know, we don't do that today. But if we did, you know, uh, we'd be, it would be frightening to see what we could achieve. Yeah, yeah. So it, like the popular saying goes that it needs to now be less of aid, more of trade. I think that's where Africa needs exactly. to drive towards. Absolutely. And I believe that it's capable of doing that. And we have to help each other first. You need to see other African countries, as we are starting to see in some areas. And, you know, you see the work that's been done in Rwanda, and on the east of Africa with Tanzania and Kenya and others, they're starting to cooperate and collaborate better with each other. You know, if you see the railroad that they're building now in Tanzania back out, you know, they're starting to work with other countries because, you know, Rwanda, which is a landlocked country, now knows, says, that, look, we need to build our railroad out, you know, out through from Kigali, out through Tanzania, out to the coast, because then it means we can do trade. And we need to cooperate and collaborate with our African country partners to do that and share costs and share the infrastructure because we all benefit from that. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's, it's been brilliant talking to you today. Um, on the last note, before we round off this um, podcast, like you're aware, this is the first season of the podcast, um, which uh, I decided to launch to showcase positive narrative about the African continent and also um, influential Africans, specifically targeting Africans who are living outside the African continent, who are doing great stuff. And you've accepted to come on the 
on the um, on the show. Um, can you give a feedback on your reason for accepting this invite and what you think about the idea? I think firstly, I think the idea is fantastic and um, it, it really plays into the fact that I believe that there are many, many Africans, uh, both in the diaspora but also in Africa that are doing some amazing things. And often the narrative that's portrayed uh, in Africa is often different. And I think for young, especially young people or second or third generation, young people that are born outside, I think it's important for them to see people that are like them that are doing well, but more importantly, to share different experiences to help as well. And um, otherwise, you know, the narrative that's portrayed is one that's quite different and one that often they don't own that identity or their heritage and feel proud of that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, yes, I'm, a, I, I'm, I'm born and bred in this country, but I have a heritage, you know, that is from Nigeria in this case, in Africa, and I, and I identify equally with that as well in that, you know, that is part of my, you know, part of me as a person. So I think that, you know, the more positive um, images, the more positive um, stories that are shared um, on, you know, the um, Africa Emerging platform, then it's a great place to signpost people to, to say, well, you know, maybe, yes, you do hear the odd negative story, as you hear in every community. However, here are 25 or 30 podcasts or, or, or other forms of uh, communication of some really great things that have been done by people that are outside of Africa, either doing things in Africa or in other parts of the world. You know, um, whether it be in the Far East, whether it's be in the US, you know, there are lots of areas where I think that people don't necessarily know or understand. And I think it's important that those stories are shared um, to help inspire and to, um, you know, motivate um, people to, uh, to ensure that they feel proud about their African heritage. Absolutely, absolutely. So I really would just like to commend you, uh, Tutu, on this initiative that you're doing. And uh, I wish you all the very best for Africa Emerging. I'll certainly keep very close and watch to see how, how it emerges and does well. I'm, I'm pretty sure it will do. And, um, you know, it's a pleasure and, a, and, a, and an honour, really, to be uh, one of a few of the first people to provide a podcast for you. Yo, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you and I really do appreciate you taking out time from your uh, busy schedule to, you know, come on the show today. It's an absolute honour. My pleasure. Okay, thank you and have a good day. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Tutu. Yeah, bye. Thank you for listening to the Africa Emerging Podcast with our guest on the show. I hope you enjoyed the show like I did. Please like Africa Emerging on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you haven't done so yet, don't forget to subscribe and download this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play and Overcast. Like, share and review. Your feedback is extremely important to me. It will help me improve content provided on the show. Thank you for listening to the show. Spread the word on how Africans are changing the world. It's time to build the African continent. Subscribe to our newsletter on africaemerging.com.